Uh, we're going to be giving out. I was a little busy this week. Um, but we're going to be giving out some prayer sheets. Consider what times we want some prayer round the clock on uh, before this, the end of this month. The things that are being done right now historically have been things that have been occult, hidden. They're no longer occult. They're right out in the open. And they're being praised. So we need to pray for the protection of the children and against the cloud of ignorance for the parents that allow their children to be participants in this. I want to begin by giving some honor to some folks in the congregation, uh, specifically Larry Sherrill, Scott Fisher, Mike Gonzalez, Dan D, Dan Duchesne, Ron of Ron and Ronette fame, Patty and Beth Cho, and especially to uh, Kevin Coulter and Jay McMaster. Those two worked till 10.30 on Thursday night because we had to get, this building was in serious disrepair. And when we opened up one of the towers, I, I just could not believe this building was standing by habit. And those two jumped in there and just, I mean, they got it prepared. The, the, the guys doing the, the stucco couldn't even work on it. We had to completely shed everything. We had to redo some studs. It was really bad. Um, they jumped in there, and they did not quit until 10.30 at night, and it was done. And, you know, to all those who have been working so hard, it's been such a blessing to see all of this participation in, in bringing our sanctuary back to some level of, you know, niceness. Very exciting. So, God bless you guys, and thank you so much. And yes. Now, I'd also like to thank our Chazan before he leaves. Um, Dave ran these services during the holy days that just passed. I think there were seven thousand in three days. Something along those lines. I'm, I'm not, not exactly sure. I, I lost count after the first 3,000 services. Um, he had some big shoes to fill when Rabbi Berg left us here to wallow while he rose up into glory. Rabbi Bilberg was the premier chazan in the Messianic movement. He was actually the president of his shul, 
and the chazan of his shul before he came to faith. And I tried to be an encouragement to Dave when he first was very concerned about getting the melodies and the tropes right and things. The technique is important, but it is not the most important thing. They've spent many days preparing for each of these services, and the awe of God was ever before him. He understands the depth of the responsibility that he has taken on. And there is a profound difference between worship and entertainment. When I was growing up, some of the shuls actually hired opera singers to do Kol Nidra. And it was spectacular from an entertainment point of view. You can't lead worship if you are not yourself worshiping. You can entertain. The haunting melodies of the Ashkenazi Jews in Northeastern Europe differ from the obvious Arabic influence of the Sephardi Jews in the Middle East and Southern Europe. But all those melodies are, after all, the inventions of man. God didn't give us a melodic line. I looked to the intents of the heart, and Dave ministered to me during those days of awe, and I appreciate and thank him for his service to God and to this kahila, this congregation. So, Wait. I wish I had a yarmulke with a brim, but uh, I, would, I would tip it. <laughs> Just. Amen. And one last man I would like to honor before I begin to honor God. I was constrained from mourning the death of a friend during Zaman Simchatenu because it's the season of our rejoicing, and mourning is not rejoicing. Now I can speak, and we'll say Kaddish to him tomorrow, I can speak of a great man. David Stern was my friend. I stayed his, at his house on numerous occasions, and a beautiful house it was, sanctuary for me while I was in Israel. He carved out of the rock a place of peace. He was a wealthy man by any standard, and he could have lived his life circling, uh, seeking earthly treasures. However, his wealth never did dull his neshoma. He shared his wealth with many of the believers in the land, and he helped this man when his wife was sick and we couldn't afford the treatments. David Stern was one of the men who gave most generously so that Sylvia could get what she needed. His mind was sharp. He earned a PhD at a relatively young age, and his efforts in producing the Messianic Jewish Bible translation of the scriptures have blessed hundreds of thousands. He was certainly one of the shining lights that God used to resurrect the Jewish Messiah among God's ancient people. 
And that translation has helped turn the hearts of many from the nations, calling them to love the people and the land of Israel. He breathed life into his clarinet. In that hollow piece of heaven, he came alive with the breath of his soul. His body tried to hinder him, but his body could not suppress his indomitable spirit. I was blessed to sit and spend some time with him one day off the back end of this magnificent house he had. It's in the hills that surround Yerushalayim. It was in an old Arab village that was vacated. Manahat. And we sat and, and talked a long period of time. I was out there playing my, my fiddle and he came out and we just started talking. Climbing the Grand Teton is difficult for anyone, but even more so for a man whose feet simply would not cooperate. David was in constant pain. We spent time reminiscing about the rigors of that climb and the majestic views that are reserved for those few who made it to the top. He was fortunate to be loved by a wonderful woman, Martha, who took care of him when his strength finally gave out. And I would ask that you please keep Martha and their children in prayer as they mourn the loss of a great man. David Stern lived a charmed life, and I am honored to call him friend. I can give no great, greater honor than this. We rode together for a peace, and I ain't got no complaints. Amen. He throwed, though, friend. I'll be along directly. Let us now move from honoring man to honoring God. In the New Covenant portion today, for this week, which is something I forgot to mention, the Gospel of Yochanan, chapter 13, verse 33, through chapter 14, verse 6. The title of this message is, As the Summit Calls. New Covenant portion, Yeshua tells his disciples that he's going away. And they express their desire to go with him. He tells them that where he is going, they cannot follow, but they will soon enough. He's referring, of course, to his death and the death of his disciples. But Yeshua does not describe it so much in a bad way. In John 17, he says, he describes his death as a glorification. Father, it is time. Glorify your son. At conception, God integrates a body, an earthly breath, and a divine breath to create a living creature. At death, those 
components disintegrate. The body returns to the dust from which it came. The nefesh, the natural soul of the body, this flesh, escapes and returns to the atmosphere from which it came. And the neshama, the breath of God that was breathed into the nostrils of a man, is released and returns to the place of its origin, God. At a Jewish funeral, you might hear the words, Baruch Dayan Ha'emet, Blessed is the true judge. The true judge is also called the righteous judge, whose judgments reveal absolute justice. There's no court of appeal. Psalm 89, verse 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The waters of truth, justice, and righteousness flow from the fountainhead of God's holiness. God's holiness is the most extraordinary, the most remarkable, and the most elusive aspect of his being. I've mentioned this many times. We'll do it again. The superlative in Hebrew is accomplished by doubling the word. So kadosh kadashim, the holy of holies, was the most holy place on earth. It was separated out as the place God was enthroned on the covering of the ark. God's holiness stands above that place that contained it. He alone is proclaimed by the seraphim to be kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. A holiness greater than any capable, anything capable of being achieved here in this world. And all of his other qualities flow from God's holiness. It's what makes all the other things pure. His holiness is tam. It's one of the name of one of the jewels that the high priest had behind his breastplate, the urim v'tumim, the lights and perfections of God. The word tam means perfect. It is a perfect holiness. It cannot be increased. It cannot be diminished. It can't be corrupted. It stands alone, untouched by anything in this world. Any application of the word holy to something other than God is always a diminished application. It's qualified. The Holy of Holies on earth was but a reflection of the Holy of Holies not made with hands. The Holy of Holies is the place that heaven and earth touch. And given that, de that definition, Gan Eden was the first Holy of Holies on earth. But these most holy places on earth could be and indeed were corrupted. And the Holy of Holies in the temple on earth is lost to us now, even as the garden before it. The word kadosh means to be separate. That's all it means. We have attached God knows how many other words to the word holy, but it simply means to be separate. And God is utterly separate from his creation. He bears no resemblance to anything 
that we can see or touch or smell or taste or hear with our natural senses. He exists as something utterly different from anything in his natural creation. Yet even the dim glimpses of his glory afforded us in the natural realm are overwhelming in both beauty and majesty. The images of the Hubble and now the Webb telescope bring that the, the images these telescopes bring to man, they call to us. Yet even these breathtaking images reveal only a portion of the glory of the one who created them. We are desperate to find words to define God, and we fail every time. We cannot apprehend God in our minds that he is greater than our imaginations. Ephesians chapter 3, verse, verse 20, Paul, he has the same awe. God is greater than our imaginings. We, we have no idea. His presence in us, his breath, our neshama, is the part of man that senses his presence. The wind of God carries his words that are perceived by that portion of God, God's image that he placed within us. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, we are told, it is a command, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Our rabbis are quick to point out there is no ability to reach that goal. In this flesh, in this, in olam hazeh, in this world, we cannot be holy like God is holy because God is completely different from anything in this world. It is impossible. However, as we seek to be holy, even as he is holy, the more our souls can vibrate sympathetically with his breath. And consequently, the more accurately we can hear those words that are carried on that, that wind, that breath of God, as our souls begin to sway in harmony with the vibration of his words. In truth, the only true image of God present in creation is that portion of his breath that he breathed into man. All other images are distortions. God is a wind. And he breathed one breath of that wind into each of us. And this is precisely why we were commanded not to make any images of God. He already did. This is what I learned as a child. This is how God was presented to me. The various drawings of God as an old man with a long white beard and clothed in glowing white robes sitting on a luminescent throne were dismissed as being idolatrous, a childish and inadequate attempt to imagine what God is like. I have come to understand that although indeed childish and inadequate, the vision of this vision of God is not necessarily idolatrous. Depends what you do with it. 
In point of fact, this vision was inspired by God himself. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, just before Isaiah hears the sound of the seraphim crying out, Kadosh, 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 Adonot, Svaot. Just before he hears that, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Psalm 2, Yoshev B'Shemayim Yitzchak. He who sits on that throne in heaven laughs. I don't know about you, but I've given God a good laugh every once in a while. At least, I hope he left. It's a, it's a big hope. In truth, throughout the Tanakh, God describes himself in the image of a man sitting upon a throne. He, he declares that he has a face, a nose, ears, and eyes, hands and feet, arms, a heart. It's the only way we can relate to him. Amen. In the fullness of time, he appeared to us, not as a spectral beam of light or some wisp of wind, but as a man, Amen. possessed of similar weaknesses and subject to temptations that are only there to affect the flesh, yet also possessed with the power to overcome every frailty we inherited from the first man, Adam. Psalm 2 commands that we show honor to the Son. However, that translation, although accurate in essence, is not precise. The words in Psalm 2 on Nashkubar, kiss the Son, which is a way of showing honor, obviously throughout the Middle East. People kiss each other on both sides of the tree. A young Jewish maiden named Miriam would be the first person to fulfill that command literally in a profound song and even a more profound verse. Mary, did you know when you kissed your baby boy, you kissed the face of God? Oh, every time I hear or say that, my heart explodes. In, in Yeshua, God caused his goodness to pass before man, and we didn't need to be placed in the cleft of a rock as did Moses and have God's hand cover us and protect us from his glory. The body of flesh that he appeared to us in protected us from the fullness of that glory. Only when his flesh grew weak on the Mount of Transfiguration were we exposed to a portion of his true appearance. When he began to shine in, in a bright light, and he is light, and in him is no darkness. In truth, God is light and wind, neither of which have any form that we can perceive. You can't see light. The only time you can see light is when you are looking directly at the source 
or at something that light is reflected off of. The night sky is black, save for those stars we look at directly. All space between those stars, black. But that darkness is filled with light. We just can't see it. We can see the moon and various satellites as soon as they enter into that darkness because we can see the light reflected off it. Similarly, we cannot see wind. We can only see the, we can only determine wind exists by how it affects other things that we can see. Trees waving dirt or smoke being carried on those swirling currents. I can feel the wind gently caress my face. I can determine the existence of God's light and wind by his effect on everything that he touches, including humanity. God has to hide or diminish his full presence when he appears to man. The nature of his being is so alien that if he were to appear without some barrier between him and his creation, that creation would disintegrate. When he appeared at Sinai, when he appeared to Elijah, the physical creation began to unravel. The earth shook. There were thunders and lightnings, and there was intense fire. The creation was coming undone. He will often use a cloud to shroud the light of his glorious presence. When the sons of Aharon produced a cloud of, of strange smoke, that was different than what God had first intended. It couldn't protect them. And when God appeared, they were reduced to cinders. Moses desired to see the fullness of God's glory. And God told him, no one can see my face. It's a way of saying the fullness of my glory and live. He was hidden then in the cleft of a rock and he was covered by God's hand and God's, a portion of God, his goodness, passed before him. And even in that diminished presence, when Moshe descended, he had been somewhat transfigured, wasn't he? His face shone so brightly that none in Israel could even gaze upon him. Nothing physical can stand in the light or energy of, that is emitted, if you will, by God. I, I don't know how else to say it because of it. Paul reveals this truth in 1 Corinthians 15. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's not possible. It would disintegrate. There's a, a midrash, in, uh, midrash in, in Talmud and it talks about a, a, a rabbi who's being hounded by a heathen. And, and, and the heathen says, show me your God. Here, I got my God. He's in his pocket. And he pulls out his God. He says, Here, here's my God. Show me your God. And eventually, you know, the heathen is hocking him a chinik. He won't leave him alone. And finally, the rabbi turns around. Okay, fine, I'll show you my God. But first, Look up 
and look directly into the sun. Heathen looks at him. Meshuggah, you're crazy. You look at the sun, you stare into the sun, you go blind. And the rabbi says, if you cannot look at the sun for its brightness, how do you suppose you can gaze upon the one who created that sun? And the rabbi gathered up his pearls and left. My desire to know God is fueled by the light that I perceive exists just on the other side of the translucent veil. The swirling shadows emphasize those lights that twinkled, those lights that called to my soul. It's the mystery of God that maintains my curiosity. He's there. I can see glimpses of him and hear his whispers walking on the wind of the day at times. Yet he remains just beyond my grasp. It's like the painting by Miguel Angelo. It, I reach, but there's a gap. I, I, I can't, can't grasp him, can't touch him. It is the wonder of God that calls to me. So utterly different, yet somehow strangely familiar. I dimly remember in the recesses of my soul the one who first breathed the breath, that soul into existence. My creator appeared to me as a man and left with the words and the promise that he is preparing a place for me, that where he is, I shall be also. As the disciples, I want to go, yet hear the words, where I go now, you cannot follow presently. Once again, the same vessel that contains the spark that popped off the divine fire hinders me from merging once again with that divine light. But I do sense and I will soon shed this final barrier. And as my friend David Stern, I will know and experience the place of divine splendor that I have only been able to read about and imagine here. I will leave you with parable. The rigors of this life are similar to the ascent of the Grand Teton. From the valley floor, the call of the summit is heard loudly. You see only the top. The journey is not even considered. It's a straight line from your eye to that pointed peak. And you gaze at it intently. And you hear the summit call, come up. The excitement of the first step quickly disappears when the body is utterly drained. The lack of oxygen and the pain of constant exertion screams. You cannot take another step. And you break tree line. And you behold the majesty of sheer rock rising thousands of feet there before you. 
and you once again hear the call of the summit, and your strength returns to you. In these days of gathering darkness, when everything that is true appears to be failing, every foundation stone of righteousness is being destroyed, when your strength has utterly departed, may you hear the summit's call. Come up just a bit further. Take one more step. And then when that step is finished, Take another. When you see this, let your heart rejoice. For truly, it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Father, in Yeshua's name. Let us break through. to behold a peak that contains your presence. All we have is these natural similes and metaphors and analogies and euphemisms. That's all we have. But our souls long to join back with you, to share a communion that is greater than any we can share here with wine or bread. That as you and the Father are one, that we and you and the Father might be one. It was your prayer, Lord God, fulfill that prayer. Let us behold more of the light of your presence that we might be filled with rejoicing and find the strength to finish this race. In Yeshua's precious and holy name, amen.